You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? You're not listening to me. I can tell you're not listening to me. Let's do it again. What's up, Revolution Church? All right. Like, I'm trying to act like an adult sometimes and be like, good evening, Rev. And you guys are like, yeah, we're not listening to that junk. Like, you just keep going. So you, I mean, you're going to act like a teenager all the time. Appreciate it. Uh, no, dude, I am. I'm up here grinning like an idiot because I see people, Sienna and your dude and other people. I don't know your name yet. We're working on it. It'll take me like a solid two years to get your name, by the way. Um, but yeah, like, I see people that I haven't seen in a minute. And I'm so, Courtney, Maria, I know I've seen you, like, but, but, man, I don't know. Like, I, I'm just having the college students back. This is going to be hilarious in the podcast, by the way, to get back and listen to this. Like, I'm geeked right now. And I know, like, there are going to be more college students coming in within the next couple of weeks. And I miss you guys so bad. Oh, this is phenomenal. I love you all so much. Um, no. I love all of you. But them, I miss them more. Because I see your mug every week, multiple times a week. I'm not interacting with you anymore, Brandon. Anyway, so what we've been doing, if, if, if you've obviously not been here, if you're, if you've, if you're new from the summer, uh, we're going through the book of Acts this summer, and we've been doing this series called The People of God. And what we're doing is we're looking at different examples of the early church and, and seeing what we can learn from their godly examples, what we can learn from their failure. Um, we're just really trying to take a look at what they thought, um, what they taught, um, what they did, how they lived, those kinds of things. And then we're, what we're trying to do, hopefully, by, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, is we're trying to bring our lives in line with their attitudes and their actions that brought glory to God. Because right? we see that the early church, again, by God's grace, and he's sovereign, and, and when he decides to do this, just exploded. It's just explosion of holiness, explosion of godliness. Uh, like thousands are added to the church's numbers in like no time at all. Because um, the gospel's being proclaimed, and, and again, they're just living godly lives. I'm not, and I'm not saying that, God's, that there's a formula for like church growth or anything like that, but I feel like if, we, if, if we're going to be biblical Christians, I think Acts gives us a really good example of how the early or how the church should be Uh, but throughout this series we've looked a good bit at the actions of the church which makes sense because it's called the acts of the apostles right pretty clever Um, but we've been looking at what the church did a lot Um, but last week we took a look at uh, what the church believes right what we believe about salvation that salvation is by God's grace alone and and not our merit and it's received by faith alone um and again, not by our merit, not by anything we do, but by trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And it's not from obeying God's law. It's not from being moral. It's solely by faith that we're saved. Um, and tonight, we're going to look at kind of something that, that comes off of that, um, like a derivative of that belief of salvation by faith alone. Um, tonight, we're going to look at the freedom and liberty that we have through Jesus Christ. Um, and I might, be, I might be making a distinction there. Uh, we're going to talk about freedom first, and then we're going to talk about liberties in Christ. And I might be making a distinction that no one else has, not that no one else has made. Maybe I'm just using the wrong words. But I'm going I'm to make a distinction between freedom and liberty um, that we have through Jesus. Um, and I want us to take a look at the attitude that the early Christians had concerning that freedom and how God wants his people to view their freedoms and their liberties in Jesus. Um, so really what we're going we're gonna to take a real hard look at towards the end is, is a Christian liberty. Just a show of hands. How many people have heard that term, Christian liberty, or your liberties in Christ? 
a few of us. All right, I get it. It's cool. It's cool. This is why we do this. This is going to be a good time. Um, so we're going to take a look at Christian liberty and what that means for us. Um, because this is a really, really important teaching. Uh, because a lot of people get the idea wrong and they abuse the idea of Christian liberty and they use it as an excuse to sin. Right? Well, salvation comes by faith alone. I'm free in Christ. Party on, right? Like, party on, Wayne. That's not what we're here to do. That's wrong. Um, that's called licentiousness, actually. I might use that word later, just so you know. Licentiousness just means you have a license to sin, right? Like, you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. Um, that's wrong. That's evil. Um, but then at the same time, so there's that on this one hand. And then there's, on the other hand, there are people who don't understand their freedom in Christ at all. And then they live their lives bound by man-made traditions, and neither of those things, licentiousness or uh, being bound by the traditions of men, neither of those things are what God has in mind for his people at all. Um, so I hope that by the end of this sermon that we would all better understand the true freedom that Jesus gives us and how we ought to live towards one another in light of that freedom. Because if we would really take what we're going to look at this evening, if we would take this stuff to heart and apply it to our lives, then by the grace of God, the church in general and specifically here at Revolution, the church would live in better unity with one another. We'd be more gracious towards one another. We'd be more loving towards one another. And God desires that from his people for certain. All right, so without any more uh, by way of introduction, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 21. Uh, if you're new um, or you lost your Bible over the summer because you're a college student and you're irresponsible, take one, <laughs> take one of those blue Bibles out the backs of our pews home with you. Um, there, it's our gift to you. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. It's going to be, is the projector on? Oh, it is. You, you faked me out, brother. I appreciate that. Anyway, Acts 15, 12 through 21. Let's see what Luke wrote. He says, Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood and said this, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. That's the quote. James picks up with this. And so, so in light of that, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Let's take a second and pray real quick. Uh, Father, uh, please send your Holy Spirit um, in in a fresh way this evening. Uh, Pour him out that that we could have soft hearts towards this passage in the Bible. Um, Holy Spirit, conform us to the image of Christ. Um, Speak through me. Let the scriptures speak. Because if you don't do that, then everything that I'm going to attempt to do this evening is vain because it's your work and your work alone, God, that that saves. It's your work and your work alone that sanctifies and makes us more like Jesus. So please do a mighty work in us because we are utterly helpless to do anything for ourselves. No amount of human will or exertion can do anything for us. Please work in us by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
So, again, just a, a quick recap. Like we said last week, we talked about salvation by faith alone, not works. Right? It's completely by the work of Jesus Christ that we're saved. Nothing that we do at all. I got really jacked about this sermon last week. This is awesome. Right? The law, obedience to the law, obedience to God's commands in the Bible can't save. The whole point of the law we learned last week is to show you how awful that you are and me, to show us how terrible that we are and how much that we need a Savior in Jesus. That if obedience to the law could have ever saved anybody, Jesus Christ would not have came and died. Right? So we must have faith in Christ, just trusting him alone, trusting that his work is enough to save us so that we don't have to rely on any of our works, right? And and then we we took a look at Peter's argument from this same chapter that we're in that Peter says, you know, God saved these Gentiles who have never really obeyed his law, who weren't circumcised in accordance with the Old Testament law, um, who hadn't even been baptized yet, but they believed the gospel and God sent his Holy Spirit in them just like he did to all of us Jews who believed, right? So clearly salvation must come apart from obeying the law. It must come strictly by faith and that's the ruling that this council that was meeting to answer this question, what must a man do to be saved? Um, that's the ruling that they came to. Well, salvation is by grace through faith alone, not obeying the law. So we talked about that last week a good bit. Um, and now this text comes right after it, right? So this text is right after Peter finishes his argument. Um, and it says that Peter sits down, and then Paul and Barnabas stand up, who have very similar experience to Peter, that they've been out among the Gentiles, and they've seen... Um, these non-Jews who've never obeyed the Old Testament law coming to faith in the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit, right? So they just reiterate what Peter has already said, and they're reiterating it by their own testimony, and then James stands up, right? This is Jesus' half-brother, right? This is the dude who wrote the book of James in your New Testament, right? So James stands up, and this dude holds a lot of sway, right? Not just because he's uh, the half-brother of Jesus, right? But he has such a, a... a good reputation for being godly. It's really funny. One of his nicknames was Old Camel Knees, right? Because, like, his knees were, like, calloused and rough because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer, right? Like, James, um, super, super godly guy, and he holds a lot of sway in the church in Jerusalem specifically. Um, all right, so whatever he says is, is, is going to really matter to these people that are, that are getting ready to hear this. And what he does is he agrees with Peter. Right, And what he does is he says, you know, I'm with Peter on this because the scriptures back this up as well. And he quotes from the Old Testament, and he quotes from Amos chapter 9. Um, and, that, and, the, and the quote basically says that God promises to bring the Gentiles in to his people, right? Choose a people for himself, even from among the Gentiles, after he rebuilds David's tent. Right? David's tent meaning the line of David that Jesus Christ came out of. That there had been no king from David's line in a long time. But now, boom, this tent gets rebuilt and now the Messiah comes out of David's line. So that tent has been rebuilt. They've seen Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now it's time to bring the Gentiles in. And James gets that. James, that's why he quotes Amos. And then he says, in light of that, we should not put the law on the Gentiles. We said we shouldn't burden them. We shouldn't make things hard on the Gentiles. And what he means is we should not put the Old Testament law on the Gentiles as a means to salvation, right? Because they've ruled faith alone by the grace of God alone saves. Right? But James does do this, though. And this is, this is legit, like, one of the strangest passages in Acts. Like, so if you were like, what the heck is he going to do with this? After you, like, read, like, James's ruling. Um, because James says the Gentiles, are, so they're saved by faith, but here are four laws that I want you to follow. No meat sacrificed to idols, no sexual immorality, no meat with blood in it. That's what it means to eat strangled meat, right? It's not kosher, right? The blood hasn't been drained out of it. Um, and no consuming blood, right? Which 
might mean drinking blood. I'm, I wasn't quite sure whenever I studied that. It was kind of gross to think about, right? Just don't consume raw blood, I suppose. Um, and then after he gives the, that verdict, the council itself tells us we didn't read it. In verses 22 through 35, they, they write this down. Um, you know, like put their stamp of approval on it, and they send it out with different people from Jerusalem to go to all the churches um, throughout the land and tell them, hey, the Gentiles are saved by faith alone, uh, in, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, but here are the four rules we want them to obey. And the Bible says that the Gentiles rejoiced. Right? So they received these four really weird commands, but they also receive, you know, okay, so we, we do count you as saved. Your faith has saved you, and they rejoice, and they don't view those four laws as a burden. But the question that you're all asking, that I asked, I hope you're asking, I have the mic, so it doesn't matter what you're asking, um, is, is why does James give these four commands? Why does he give them? Right? Because we're not saved by obeying the law, especially in reference to the Old Testament ceremonial law, like circumcision. That's what they were actually meeting to debate over. Do, do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? But of those four commands, three of them are ceremonial law commands. Three of them have to do with diet, what you eat. That is, that is straight up ceremonial law in the Old Testament. It uh, falls under that category. And, but one of them was a moral command, right? The sexual immorality thing. Um, quick answer, just because if you're like me, you won't be able to focus on anything else I say if I can't give you some kind of an answer for why he did that. Um, first one, he, he told them to abstain from sexual immorality, probably because the Gentiles were not doing real well with this one. Right? I mean, that makes sense. Simple enough answer. If you consider, like, the pagan sexual ethics, that, like, if you slept with someone you weren't married to, wasn't really considered like cheating on your spouse, right? It was just something you did. You could go to the temple, actually, in a lot of Greek cities, and you pay money to sleep with a temple prostitute. And that wasn't adultery. That wasn't cheating on your wife. That was worship, right? Madness, right? So like, if you think about like pagan sexual ethics, they're probably not doing very well with this because they didn't grow up with the Old Testament, right? So that one makes sense. Um, our culture's pagan, not doing very much better with that. Um, and then the, the ceremonial law, um, and we're going to talk about this a lot later. He gives them these three commands to promote peace and unity with Jewish Christians. And we're going to get into that a lot more later. But this whole chapter 15 of Acts, um, especially this passage we read this evening, it brings up questions about freedom and liberty in Christ. Right? And these questions and doctrines are crucial for, for how we live in the peace that we have in the gospel. Right, so like we really need to know these things. Right, so the first thing I, I want to attack this evening is what does it mean to be free in Christ? It, mean, it means a few things. Um, but the first thing that I want to talk about is it means that we're free from the requirements of the ceremonial law. Right? And a lot of the times I think that we'll, we'll overlook this um, just because like, we take it as like a given. Like, well, of course, like I don't have to like obey kosher food laws and I can wear clothing of two different kinds of fabrics right, and stuff like that. And we don't think anything of it. But this is really a huge grace of God given to us that we don't have to obey those ceremonial laws, right? Think about this. God brings non-Jews into his people, and then he desires them to maintain their cultural distinctives that aren't sin. Think about that. It's like the music that you're into, right? So long, so long as it's not you know, wicked, right? Which I know I'm not being a legalist on that, so bear with me on that. It's like music, dress, um, you're not dumb. I'm not going to insult your intelligence anymore. Cultural things, right? Things that separate cultures from one another. Those distinctives can be brought into the kingdom of God so long as they're not sinful, right? And I, and I think one of the reasons why, why God set up the new covenant that way through Jesus was I, I believe it brings him more glory that these diverse people would stay diverse but then all rally around God and his Messiah, 
while maintaining their differences, be one. Right? So this is a huge grace to us. Because if God didn't do away with the ceremonial law, then in order to become a Christian, we would have all had to become culturally Jewish first, forsake our diversities, all become Jewish. Um, and the reason why I say that is because there were so many regulations on food and dress and festival observances, right, and, and, and cleanliness laws. You can't touch this. You're not allowed to go around that, stuff like that. Um, we would have to become culturally Jewish. There would be no middle ground there. Um, and those things would be a burden to us for certain. So that's a huge grace. We are free from the ceremonial law. But how did that happen? How did we become free from the ceremonial law? Um, This is simple. Jesus did it, right? Like felt bored Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Um, (laughs) Jesus' perfect obedience to the Old Testament law, right? He perfectly obeyed. He, He never erred ever in his obedience to the entirety of the Old Testament. Not just the ceremonial law, but all of it. Right? His, his complete and utter obedience to God's old covenant law, and then his death in our place and his resurrection, all of that brought an end to the old covenant. Right? Covenant, if you don't know, it means contract. Right? So Jesus brings an end to sacrificial law and the sacrificial system. He brings an end to the dietary law, to those cleanliness laws and all those things. Why? Because he perfectly fulfilled it. He never broke those laws. He was perfectly obedient. If you fulfill a contract, it's void. Right? Like if I say I'll work for you for five years, and then the five years are up and I worked for you and didn't break contract, boom, it's void. If you want to sign up with a new contract, sure, but the old one is voided, which is why Jesus then inaugurates the new covenant. Right? This new contract that doesn't have these laws in it, they're done away with. Salvation is now by uh, faith in Christ alone, and those old things, those old ceremonial laws are done away with. Right? So I know I'm getting a little bit nerdy, and, and some of you are wondering... I'm just trying to show you the different ways that we're free in Christ before we get to liberty. Because I don't, I don't want us to, to jump straight into the liberties without really appreciating just how free that Jesus has made us. Right? So all these laws that would be a burden to us because we're not culturally Jewish, God in his grace and mercy says, keep your cultural distinctives. You don't have to do those things. And it brings him glory in doing so. So we're free from all of that because of the new covenant. Right? Ceremonial law is obsolete because of the work of Jesus. But here's a, here's a more beautiful one. What else, how else are we free in Christ? You should get excited about this one if you didn't get about the other one. We are free from the penalty of the whole law. Think about that. We are free from the penalty of the law. God is, in no uncertain terms, says, you break my law, you die. Right? The wages of sin is death. And this isn't just a physical earthly death. This is hell. Right? This is damnation. You break the law, you deserve to go to hell. Right? You, you look at a woman too long, right? and you lust after her, you deserve to go to hell. You steal something, you deserve to go to hell. You get unrighteously angry with someone, you deserve to go to hell. Um, like, and and, and I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, it's just... God demands absolute, utter perfection. And His law is completely impossible for sinners to obey completely. So all of us stand, apart from Christ, condemned under the weight of His law. Right, uh, Sin the Hill has a song I love. It's called Song of the Redeemed. It says, I was a sinner, an outsider, separated from the God I love. I carried a debt and a price on my head that I could not free myself from. Right? So, I mean, that, that, that's what they're talking about there is this weight of the penalty of the law. You break the law, you deserve to go to hell. There's nothing we can do to unbreak the law. We've already broken it. We've already sinned. But then Jesus becomes the bearer of our sin and suffered justice owed to us as our substitute. Right? So we... 
all deserve to burn in hell for eternity, but by the work of Christ, we never will because we've been set free from the righteous, just penalty of the law because of the work of Jesus. That's the big one. Like, like that's, that's a lot of comfort to me that I can know. Yeah, man, like I botched it today. Like you could ask my wife. Like I, I was just sinfully angry over something very stupid, very trivial, and I deserve to go to hell for that, but I've been set free by the work of Christ from the penalty of the law. I'll never experience that, and you won't either if your faith is in Christ. Um, and not only that, but... What house does Christ free us? He frees us from the power of sin. Romans 6 tells us that, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're free to obey God now. Before we came to faith in Christ, all we could do is sin, because as we're going to see later in Romans 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Every breath we took was sin. We had no other option, but through faith in Christ, we've been set free to obey God now, so we're no longer slaves to sin. So there's just all this freedom in Christ. We're free from the ceremonial law, the penalty of the law, the power of sin in our lives, But check this out. We are not free from the moral law. So we're going to make some distinctions between the Old Testament law here, and we're going to have to get a little bit theological, but doctrine matters. Amen? Oh, man. Oh, we are getting more Baptisty. That was a rhetorical amen. I did not expect to hear that. That was, yeah, that's what I'm, mm, yes, Charles Spurgeon would be pleased. Anyway, um, (laughs) right, so we are not free from the moral law. Um. And here's what the moral law is, basically. Any command that God gives in the Old Testament is the easiest way to explain it. Any command God gives in the Old Testament that is reiterated in the New Testament, right? Things that he wants us to abstain from, things that he wants us to actively go do, dispositions that we're supposed to have um, towards God and towards people, right? Jesus sums up all of the moral law in, in two commands. He says, love God and love your neighbor, Right? And, another, and the reason why the moral law still holds weight over us and, and carried over from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is because the moral law um, reflects God's character. Right? God says, I, I hate these things. Right? I hate these things. These things violate who I am. It's a violation of, of my holiness, and his holiness is unchanging. Right? God's character is unchanging. These laws reflect his character, so they obviously can never erode, can never go away. So we're not free from, from the moral commands of God, but we are free from the whole law as a means of salvation. And, and I'll, I'll spare you all the, all the passages that I wanted to read. Romans three twenty seven through 28. So we're free from the law as a means to salvation. It says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Right? So Paul reminds us there, even though the moral law still holds sway over you, Christian, it cannot save you at all. Again, if, if obeying the law could save us, Christ would not have come. Right? Uh, but what's beautiful is whenever the law is used properly, the law becomes our tutor. Right? The law becomes our tutor. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Or Galatians three twenty four in the uh, NASB says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Justified means saved. So the law has become our tutor. So we've been set free from the law as a means to salvation because the law never could save. That was never God's intent for the moral law. But what the moral law is for us under this new covenant of salvation by faith in Christ alone, it's like a mirror. 
right? The moral law, it, God, it, it's beautiful. And, and anyone else get punched in the face when you read the Bible a lot? If not, read it again because you're not reading it right. Um, right? The moral law is a mirror, and, and it's a grace to us because what happens whenever we read Scripture and we see how God wants us to live, it shows us how bad we're missing the mark on that. Love your neighbor. Pray for your enemies, right? Like, love your wife like Christ loved the church so much that he laid his life down for her. Like, come on, man. Like, that shows me how grimy that I am whenever I read those things. And, and what that does is it's a tutor that leads us to Christ so that we could be saved by faith. It shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us what's wrong with us and what's right with him and how much we need him, right? And it also proves to us that faith must be the only way to be saved because our good deeds will never be perfect enough to meet God's perfect standards. That's another beauty of the moral law. So, so if it's not used to save us then, but it's, mean to drive us, it's meant to drive us to Christ so that we would put our faith in Him and, and be saved, then how does the moral law still hold weight over us? Well, the moral law still holds weight over us in that we desire to glorify God. As people who have been saved by the grace of God, we love Him. We want to show the world His supremacy in how we live our lives, so it still holds weight over us in that way, that we want to show who God is. And I think that, that that's why, at least for us in, in our context, a couple thousand years after the fact, I think that that one moral law that James gave them, right, abstain from sexual immorality, I think it's a really good reminder of that, right? That the moral law still most definitely is binding on the believer, Right? And like I said, the word licentiousness earlier, this belief that we can do whatever we want, um, that is wickedness. That's evidence that you've probably not been saved either. If you believe that you can live however you want because, you know, the moral law doesn't matter anymore because it can't save me. So, like, forget it. I'm not going to do anything that God wants me to do. Um, the Bible is very clear that we must live holy lives, that we must kill sin, that we must actively love God and others, that that to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. So we must be very different from the unbelieving world around us or we prove that we're actually still enemies of God and have not been brought to peace with Him through genuine saving faith. What I'm saying is we need to be holy. We need to ask ourselves questions about, does this action honor God? Is this violating Scripture? We really need to be very introspective often about the way that we're living our lives. Does this fall in line with God's moral commands? Is this what He would have me do? And I think that we forget about holiness a lot and, and think that it doesn't matter because the grace of the gospel is so sweet. It really is. I'm saved by the work of another. Right? The old Baptist in the 1600s said an alien righteousness. Right? Little feelers? No. A righteousness that doesn't belong to me. Right? An alien righteousness. Righteousness that is not my own. That is a sweet, sweet-tasting message. Um, I think that we... We over, I can't, we can't overemphasize grace, but I think that we'll, we'll look at that without looking at the holiness of God and what he demands out of us, because the Bible still says even though grace is what saves, sin is still unacceptable in the life of a believer. And then if we walk in unrepentant sin, we prove that we don't know God. But here's what's really cool. So I know, I know this might seem kind of tedious. I just really want to, I, I really want to make sure that I'm clear with these things. So we strive for holiness, but we still rest in Christ's work for our salvation. Right? All the time that we're trying to kill the sin in our lives and live different from the unbelieving world around us, we do that knowing that it is only by grace through faith that we have been saved and not by those works. That, knowing that, keeping those things in tension, 
is actually what separates a Christian from a legalist. Right? Both people are going to obey God's moral commands. I promise you that. Right? Both people, both the Christian and the legalist are going to obey, but the legalists are trying to do it to save themselves. Do you see what I'm getting at there? So we obey because we desire to see God glorified because of the grace. We don't do away with holiness because of grace, but grace is a motivator for us to want to live holy lives. All right, so that's that. But, so that's the moral command. I think, I think that's a good reminder for us with that one moral command James got. But here's, I don't want to say more interesting. It intrigues me more, I guess, me personally. What about those three ceremonial laws that James gave to the Gentile Christians? Right? Can we all agree those are pretty weird for us to read about? Like, you can't eat steaks rare, right? Like, you can't, like, eat, like, food sacrificed to an idol, right? So nothing to do with idol worship in that. Um, and you can't drink a cup of blood, apparently, that was kind of strange. I don't know if that, that was a thing. Anyone? I've never done that. Whatever. Um, right, but, but what about those three ceremonial laws that James gave to the Gentiles? Why would he give them that? Because they're, they're free from the ceremonial law. I, I tried to make that point very clear. In Christ, they're free from the ceremonial law, so why give them these commands? Verse 21 actually gives us our answer. James says, for these laws, so for means because... So he gives this command, because these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. What James is saying in that is, in most of these cities, there are Jewish Christians and unconverted Jews who have been taught their whole life to abstain from those things. Right? They find those, those dietary things for certain, they find them incredibly offensive, and they won't want to associate with those who partake in them. Right, so even though these Jewish Christians are free from the dietary law, many of them cannot handle that freedom yet. They will not accept that they don't have to obey that dietary law. And what James sees coming down the pike, because he's a very wise, godly dude, is he sees that the Gentiles could cause unnecessary offense and division if they continue on with these dietary practices. Right? Because the Jewish people still think that it's wrong for them to do it, even though the ceremonial law has been done away with. Right, so here's what I think James is doing. I think James wants the Gentiles to abstain from those things in grace. In grace and love for those Jewish believers. Right? Not for their salvation, right? because salvation comes by faith alone. And it's not because abstaining from those things inherently pleases God, because the ceremonial law has been done away with. But love and grace do please God. Make sense? He wants them to do this out of love and grace for their Jewish brothers who don't understand their freedom from the ceremonial law yet. And God loves whenever we display love and grace to one another. So James can legitimately command them to abstain from those three ceremonial, or to obey those three ceremonial laws. So I think what he's saying is obey these laws for a season, right, for a time, in order to live in harmony and peace with your Jewish brothers until they understand their freedom better. Right? And here's what's interesting, and I want you to bear this in mind for what else we're getting ready to talk about here in a minute. These Gentiles received those commands gladly. They rejoiced whenever that letter was read to them. They did not make a deal, a big deal about it. They didn't get upset. They didn't groan under what a burden it was to have to obey those three ceremonial laws. They rejoiced. So all of this brings up questions about liberty. Right, what is Christian liberty? I genuinely, I want you guys to do this. Whenever you go home, read Romans chapter 14 and 15 and read 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11. Do that. Come find me. I'll remind you of it again. 
I thought it would have been funny if I would have read all like 17 chapters to you there, but I spared you from that. Anyway, go home and read them. But here's what Christian liberty is in a nutshell. (laughs) This is fun. If the Bible doesn't explicitly or implicitly call something sin, then you can do it if you're a Christian. (laughs) That's the easiest definition that I can give you of Christian liberty. And what I mean by explicit, right, don't murder people, right? Like, that's pretty explicit, right? Like, you don't do that. That's really plain on its face, right? But then implicit, what do I mean by that? An implicit command would be this. The Bible says, the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, because I've looked for it, because I was an idiot for, uh, like five years ago. Nowhere in the Bible, I'm still an idiot, I'm just a better idiot than I was then. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say, you can't watch porn. It doesn't. I looked. <laughs> if any of you guys know my story, God, God has been gracious to me and redeemed me out, out of that. Um, but it's not there. But what is there is, don't lust, Right? So looking at porn, the whole reason porn is made is so that people would lust, right? So that would be implicit then from the scriptures. Don't lust. Don't commit adultery in your heart. So pornography, there it is, implicitly sinful, right? So if something is not explicitly or implicitly sinful, you're free to do it if you're a Christian. That's what, it, that's what Christian liberty is. And I love Christian liberty. That is beautiful, <laughs> right? And we'll talk about that more in my experiences with that here in a little while. But... We're going to go a little bit further. So that's on on its face. That's what Christian liberty is. But there are some nuances to it, right? And this is really important that we understand these things. So you're free to do it if the Bible does not call it sin. But if you believe that it's wrong for you to do it or to partake in it, whatever it is, if you think it's wrong for you to do something or partake in something, then it, it becomes sin for you to do it. Right? That sounds really weird, right? That sounds really like relativistic, and I hate relativism if you know anything about me at all. Right? Like I want everything to be black and white. So like passages that we're gonna look at here drive me insane. Right? I want everything to be black and white, not a fan of gray. Right? So even if it's not explicitly denounced or implied in scripture, if you believe something is wrong to do, then it becomes sin for you because believers are to live by our convictions. Romans chapter fourteen, verses fourteen and twenty-three in the English Standard Version says this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Because what he's doing is there, Romans 14 is just a big discussion. Can Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? Or like, do they have to worship on this one certain day of the week? Or, you know, where's the the line there? That's what he's discussing. That's why he says condemned if he eats. Um, So, boom, there we have right there in those two verses from Romans 14. Live by your convictions, right? Nothing in itself is unclean unless the scriptures declare it explicitly or implicitly to be sin. But it's unclean if you think that it's wrong. Right? And I think it's a good, a good moment to say, God gives personal convictions to people for his own reasons. Right? Like, I've met Christians that legitimately are like, no, dude, I, I don't think it's a sin to drink. I, can't, I just can't do it. Right? Like, it's just something like, I, I, I'm repulsed by it. I would not feel right if I did that. Right? Um, but then there's also society can have an influence on what people think um, is wrong to do. Right? And I'll use alcohol again because this is just a funny one. It's like, it's like the hot button issue amongst Christians generally, even though it's 2016. Um, but like alcohol and tobacco use in the Bible belt, right? Like I'm, I'm convinced that is like cultural conditioning, 
right? The vast majority of the time. I do know some believers that like that is like a legitimate personal conviction that God has given them and they don't view it as sin. But a lot of the time, at least for us, with those two issues, alcohol and tobacco, um, that tends to be um, a cultural conditioning thing that you just think Christians don't do that. But regardless of, of how you've come to these convictions that you have that aren't biblical, the Bible tells you do not violate your personal conscience ever, right? And also, the scripture tells us that nobody has a right to violate what scripture declares as sin, objectively. But aside from that, you're free to do anything that you want, which sounds easy enough. Like, liberty is awesome, right? But then, obviously, Paul, being a complicated man, he can't just leave it alone there, can he? Of course not. It's Paul, right? So we've got to keep going. Romans 14, 14 through 21, he says this, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something that you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. All right? So don't cause a weaker believer to stumble. What does that mean? As far as I can tell, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, I'm going to try to distill this. To make someone stumble is to cause someone to violate their conscience, right? To do something that they think is wrong and weaken their faith. So what, what Paul's saying there is basically this. Don't use your liberty, right? Don't use your liberty around people who think that it's wrong, right? Whatever that liberty may be. Because you may cause that person to go along with behavior that they cannot do with a clear conscience, right? So... Here's an example. The Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol. It condemns drunkenness. And if you're here and you're a recovering alcoholic or you have a problem with alcohol, do not drink. Like, okay, so like, don't, don't misunderstand me. And also, if you're not of age, don't drink because that's breaking the law. And Romans 13 says to obey the law, right? So, yeah, I've learned how to cover my bases when I talk about alcohol because I've had parents get a hold of me upset because their kids don't listen. Um, yeah, so don't sin, right? Can we get that? Yeah, just don't sin. Let's pray. All right, we're done. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so here's an example with alcohol. Don't drink alcohol around those who think it's wrong to drink alcohol. Because in doing so, you can weaken them and disturb their conscience or lead them to drink. And they can't do that without guilt. Right? So that's just, that's just your one example. Right? And I'll let the Holy Spirit apply the rest of that to your life. So don't cause your weaker brother to stumble. A brother who has convictions that you don't have who maybe even still views that as sin on some level. Don't, don't do that around them. But here's what's cool, too. So he gives that to the strong. And here at Revolution, we usually don't have people that have problems with their freedoms. Uh, people here are usually fairly strong in that they understand their freedoms in Christ. And I thank God for that. Um, so we need to really bear that in mind. Don't cause people to violate their own consciences. But Paul also has a message to the weak. Romans 14, 3 and 4, he says, Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. 
Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. All right, so think about this. I used to think like Romans 14, that like this is like insider knowledge for like the strong Christians because we're not supposed to make them st- stumble and like they don't understand their freedoms yet. I'd never thought about this before because I'm dumb. Like I knew this, but I've never applied this. This letter, most people were illiterate back whenever this letter was written. This was read aloud in all the churches where both the weak and the strong live together, right? The people who have convictions that the strong don't have. Um, so this letter is, is written to both the weak and the strong. It is read aloud to both of them. So it's saying, don't condemn the person who, who understands their liberty and wants to use it. And at the same time, you who have liberty, don't be a jerk, right? So Paul's telling them essentially, don't judge the strong because they're not sinning if God doesn't call it sin. And you're trying to stand in condemn, condemnation over the strong, even though Jesus Christ himself is not going to condemn them. So what Paul is basically telling them is, don't try to enforce your conscience on the strong. Keep your personal convictions. That's great. Don't try to enforce those personal convictions on others. Theologians call this protection against the, quote, tyranny of the weak. Right? That our liberties would be totally bound and our consciences could be totally bound by the weak. But nevertheless, the strong are to be aware of the weak and live carefully around them. I promise all this learning is going to come to a head because I do have some application for this. This is not just all like head knowledge. I I promise. Give give me a minute because it's going to hurt. It hurt me anyway. So really, like this whole concept, this whole concept really promotes peace in the body of Christ. It, It promotes peace within the church. And I can say that because Paul seems to think so in that same chapter because he says, like the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? He says, if you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Paul is aiming for unity amongst believers who might have differing consciences where the scripture doesn't speak. Right? So, I have to read this because this is kind of complicated. Right? So, so, bear with me on this. This is the conclusion that I've come to out of this. If the strong didn't despise the weak and the weak didn't judge the strong, and the strong laid down their liberties when they were around the weak, and the weak did not try to enforce their consciences on the strong, then we would live in harmony knowing that we are all Christians following our consciences and, letting this, and, and following the scriptures as best as we know how for the glory of God to be shown in our lives. I, I really think that's what we can distill this whole thing down. And I think that is what James was aiming for with the Gentiles. What he's telling them is, hey man, you're free from the ceremonial law. You don't have to obey any of that if you don't want to. But what I'm going to ask you to do is out of grace and love, go under the law and give up your liberties for the sake of the weak because you love your brothers. And and the Bible says they did it gladly. They rejoiced when they heard this. So here's my big point that I'm trying to make. Here's the application uh, um, as best as I know how. You have freedom. Thank God. Right? Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the ceremonial law. Free from the power of sin in our lives. That is awesome. And you have liberty. If the Bible doesn't call it sin, you're free to do it. But do not become a slave to your liberty. Do not become a slave to your liberties in Christ. And I wish somebody would have told me this five years ago. 
right? Like whenever I first converted, I, I came out of a very legalistic background that you weren't allowed to do anything, man. Like you couldn't go swimming with members of the opposite sex. You couldn't play cards. Like, yeah, like euchre, you're burning hell for euchre, right? <laughs> right? Like that's like legit. Like that's like the kind of, that's the kind of upbringing that I have. Everything was a sin, right? And then I find out via good theology, like, holy crap, I can't be free to do anything that the Bible doesn't say that I can't? This is awesome. And I went wild, right? I went completely insane with my freedoms. I was using all of them. <laughs> Which, like, on its face isn't, like, a bad thing, right? You see me, I'm just, like, walking around with, like, a beer and a cigar, walking down 6th Street. I'm just like, yeah, what's up? I'm, like, just hanging out because of these liberties that I've been given in Jesus. <laughs> so, so I went wild with those liberties. And again, on its face, those things aren't necessarily bad. But what I began to do is I began to use my liberty to spite people. I began to use my liberty to spite people. And what I mean by that is I would be around other Christians that I knew didn't think that it was okay to drink. And I'd be in B-dubs. And brother, I was ordering one of the tall beers. And I was going to ask them, you want one? Right? And talk about how much I love beer in front of them. Like a child. Right? Or like, I chew snuff, right? It's like every time that I'd pull like a can of snuff out of my pocket, I'd be like packing it like a loser. You want one? Because I knew that it offended them. All the time. All the time. Right? Or like, I would drop like, not like an F-bomb, like one of like the lesser bombs around people that I like I had grown up with just because I knew like it made them uncomfortable. Seriously. Like I know it sounds kind of funny like looking back on it because it is so childish. But like, listen to me. That was sin. That was sin for me to live that way. And the reason why I'm trying to be as personal as I am right now is because this has been one of the greatest struggles in my life is understanding my liberty in Christ and how to appropriately use it. But it was sin because what I was trying to do is I was flaunting my liberty in front of believers who were weaker in their conscience than I was. I was taunting them to go along with me in those things. And in doing so, I knew what I was doing. I was trying to get them to violate their consciences and offend them. And I would reason it out with myself. I just want them to be as free as I am, man. I didn't care about them. I was angry with them. I didn't care whether or not they understood their freedoms in Christ. I didn't care if they understood their liberties in Christ. I was being spiteful. And I, could, I was reckless. I could have cared less if I, shipwreck, if I made shipwreck of their faith by how I lived around them because they couldn't handle it. Could have cared less. I was a slave to my liberty. I was a slave to it. I refused to lay it down, and I didn't even realize it. I'm looking at a couple of people, Keely and Steve, who watched me have a conversation about this about three months ago. Right, so like, this is something that like I'm legitimately still, still dealing with. Right? Again, lesser and lesser ways, more subtle ways here and there, but this is something that I'm very much fighting with right now, and listen to me, I know for a fact, and I will not name names, I know for a fact that I'm not the only one in this church that, that does the same things. Maybe you're not as, because I've been a punk my whole life, maybe you're not as like blunt about it as I am, maybe like it's a little bit more underhanded, a little bit more behind the scenes kind of things, but I know I am not the only person that uses their liberties in these ways that you could care less who you're around. You won't even scan a room before you say something that's potentially offensive because they think you shouldn't say certain words to get bleeped out on television. 
right? Or you wouldn't think about, you know, where you're at publicly on whether or not, you know, is this wise? Who am I sitting with at dinner right now? Should I order a beer or not? You could care less. Again, and, and apply, because there, there's a lot more than just a couple of things like that, but those are just big hot-button things in our area that Christians tend to disagree on. There's, there's, a, there's a host of other things. That I, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit leave that to you, but I know I'm not the only person in this room right now who struggles with these things. But I recommend you, you do what I'm, I'm doing. <laughs> Repent all the time. right? The Bible tells us to constantly be in repentance. Repent, mature, grow up. Right? Like we're all trying to do that. Grow up. Become spiritually mature. Love the weak. Don't despise the weak. Paul actually says, when he says weak, he's talking about people with a weak conscience. He says, to the weak, I became weak. I become all things to all men that I might save some. He said, I became weak when I was around the weak because they couldn't handle it. And I wanted to love them. I wanted them to know Christ. Be like that. In studying for this, I read this article by a, a Scottish man named Sinclair Ferguson, right? This dude's legit. This guy is an awesome theologian, awesome preacher, and he said this, and this really helped me. He said, liberty does not have to be expressed in order to be enjoyed. Think about this. I have the freedom to carry a gun right now. I'm obviously not, because that'd be kind of awkward. Like, you ready to convert? Because I got a nine mil in my back pocket, right? That'd be like, it'd be horrible. Um, Right? But, like, I have a freedom to carry a gun. And I like that. That is a nice liberty that I can enjoy just knowing I have the right to do that if I want to. And I don't want anyone to take that from me or tell me that I, I can't, right? And we would have a debate about that on whether or not that liberty should be taken from me. Just like if someone comes to you and, and calls something sin that's not sin, you should have the conversation with them. No, brother, that is not sin. Because that's what Paul's doing in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians. But at the same time, he's saying, sure, man. We're going to talk about why it's not a sin to drink, um, but you'll never see me drink a beer until you're okay with it. But we are going to talk about this. Liberty does not have to be expressed to be enjoyed. What I'm saying is be willing to give up your liberty for the sake of other people. Because in giving up our freedoms and our liberty, we show the love of Christ to people because we are doing it in order to love People, Paul, after talking this, this big treatise on, on Christian liberty, he says this in the, in the next chapter. He says, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Jesus gladly subjected himself to the whole law and the penalty of the law in order to bring us to peace with God. So Jesus clearly did not live for his own desires. In Gethsemane, he says, I don't want to die. I don't want to drink this cup of wrath that you're about to pour out on me. I don't want that, but nevertheless, I want to please you, Father. I want to do your will in this, Father. That's Jesus' demeanor. He did not live for his own desires. We ought not live just to please our own desires in expressing those liberties recklessly. But what does God desire? Showing love for the weak pleases God. That's what he desires from us. So what I'm praying is that we would be willing to, from time to time, go under the law for the sake of the ones for whom Christ died. And not try to destroy them with our liberties. We must be slaves to Christ and his law of love and not our own desires. Because true liberty is laying down what we can do 
for the sake of others, all the while knowing that we can take it back at the appropriate time. That's genuine freedom to say it doesn't matter to me if I do it or if I don't do it. Paul says, if, if eating meat offends my brother, says this in 1 Corinthians, if eating meat offends my brother, I'll never eat it again. Knowing that he could. That's liberty. We're not chained to anything except for love. That's real freedom. I'll, I'll leave you guys with this. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants unity. God wants unity from his people. Bear that in mind with your liberties. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedoms that we have in Christ. God, I know that, that there was a lot said, but God, I pray that just those final points you would impress on our hearts that we need not be slaves to our liberty, but we ought to live um, lives of deference to other people. God, help us to be spiritually mature enough that we wouldn't hold on to our liberties um, but that we would love you and love our brother and sisters enough to lay those things down. Father, save us from ourselves. Make us more like your son. May we not be people who live for our own desires and destroy others in the process, but people who are considerate of others and do everything we can to build them up while teaching them truth. Father, thank you for everything. In Christ's name, amen.